Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I am your host, Megan Hall, psychology grad student, spouse, mom, and advocate for change. On this podcast, I provide a space for women to share their stories. Warning, sometimes we chat about taboo topics and drop some F-bombs. Thank you for tuning in with me today and enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, today I'm here with Deidre. Deidre Olson is an award-nominated writer based in Berlin. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, NBC News, The Cut, Shondaland, Narratively, and more than 50 publications. Well, that's that's a lot of publications. Welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Thank you for having me. So a quick trigger warning for anybody who's listening, and I meant to do this before I read the bio, is we are going to be talking about uh, sexual assault. So in case anybody's like, "Mm, no, I just don't have the capacity today. So I want to make sure everybody's aware of that before we get started. Um, So speaking of that, I would love for you to tell us about your story. I know that um, you have listened to previous episodes on the podcast who have also told these stories, but everybody's story is different. And I feel like we can learn something different from everybody. Um, so like my experience with one thing will be the same as somebody else's experience with the exact same thing. So start us off without any gory details. I always say that, like, we don't need explicit details. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, More like we don't need to know exactly how it like took place for sure. For sure. (laughs) Um, so I, I was living, um, I was living with my family, um, in, I was living with my family in British Columbia, but about halfway up the province, which is still like a 12 hour drive from Vancouver, but only halfway up the province, um, in the, in the, probably the biggest city in the North of the province. Um, and we lived there we lived there when I was uh, a toddler um, till I was about five years old. Um, and when I was three years old, um, a neighbor of my dad's cousin put a flyer into the mailbox um, advertising her availability to work as a babysitter. And my dad's cousin's wife gave it to my mom. We lived kind of around the corner on the next street um, gave it to my mom and my mom was like, oh, perfect. I need, I'm looking for a babysitter because both my parents worked in the trades. A lot of the times my mom was away on these, she worked for the Canadian Pacific Railway Company and she'd be along away on several days, uh, long haul trips. My dad often, he worked as a carpenter. Sometimes he was away at camp. So they had a lot of um, time spent working. So they needed a babysitter to watch my brother and I. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, uh, that babysitter, a 17-year-old girl, ended up being uh, the first person to sexually assault me. Um, basically, um, it happened, sparing the gory details. And um, <laughs> I fortunately communicated that to my mother, and she pursued justice. And this was kind of, this was in 1994. And this that was, was at- unusual back then. <laughs> exactly. She pursued justice at a time when, you know, that prevailing was very, very rare. It was, mm-hmm. it was, and she did, she did her very, very best under the circumstances. Unfortunately, my father was, um, 
uh, treated by the police as a potential suspect. So he oh. was kind of left out of the equation. And so she was really left to do it on her own. Um, and fortunately, a, a doctor was able, had medical findings that were consistent with, with sexual assault. And it went all the way to the courts. But the day that uh, the day that my mother went to the trial, what would what they would determine basically whether or not it would proceed to trial? Um, my mom walked into the court. My dad wasn't allowed in, which was shocking to him. And my mother walked in, and the entire entire evangelical church that the family of the girl belonged oh to gosh. was there to intimidate her. And shockingly, unbeknownst to herself and the police, the doctor recanted her medical findings. And before my mother's very eyes, the entire thing crumbled. And so as a result, no justice was found. Uh, That was a pretty traumatic and horrific thing for my parents. I was their first child. Um, So we stayed in the community for a couple of years longer. Eventually, we moved back to what is called the Lower Mainland. It's basically Vancouver and the surrounding metropolis. And we moved to a small town. And for me, that was a really exciting because it was kind of like I was leaving behind this city, this house, this town that mm-hmm. where all my nightmares were. Um, so I kind of had this idea that I was off on a new beginning. Everybody was happy. We're leaving this terrible past behind. Um, we moved into, uh, we stayed with an aunt for a little bit. We stayed with my mom's friends and eventually we moved into a rental while my parents looked for a house to buy. And this was probably within the first year of being in this small town. Uh, we started spending some time with family members. And unfortunately, um, I ended up being molested by two cousins, a boy a couple of years old, a couple months older, and another boy, his older brother, who was about two or three years older. And this really compounded the grief that had come south with mm-hmm. me and really cemented that trauma and really um, told me that there was there was a reason why I was the target of this ongoing violence. I didn't really understand what it was or why it was happening to me, but I knew that there was, I felt that there was something inherently innately wrong with me that caused this to happen. Um, Now I think that somebody was probably molesting these boys because I don't think Mm -hmm. that I I think that children imitate things. And I, and I, I I don't know where they would have gotten anything. And I've, I've come up with every plausible reason why I'm like, did they have a porn addiction? I'm like, no, this was like, the late 90s it was dial-up internet it had to be have been happening to them or they have to have witnessed it something creepy was going on I'm confident in their lives so I hold compassion for them mm-hmm. um, but unfortunately it it really cemented that trauma as I said and so I didn't tell my parents until my early 20s I told my siblings when I was a teenager um, but I basically I, I saw this newfound happiness that my parents had and their relief of moving to uh, moving back to this, moving back to the South because they had moved North for 10 years. Basically they couldn't afford a house. They had to go live somewhere more remote, work really hard, save the money to move back down South uh, to the more suburban area of Vancouver. So in this kind of their newfound joy, I didn't want to upset that. I thought that it would be my fault and I would upset everybody's happiness. So I kept what happened to myself mm-hmm. and there was one time when it happened and the boy's mother walked in and she told me never, never to do it again. We were playing truth or dare. 
Um, and her saying to never do it again, it also just told me, you know, keep this to yourself. Um, there was also one instance where we were still living in the rental before we moved into the house that my parents eventually bought. And I tried to imitate my cousin kissing me and I tried to kiss my sister and we were sitting in the backyard and my mother was watching us from a window. We were sitting in a pool and I tried to kiss my sister. And my mom was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And she came down and I immediately erupted into tears because that's how I knew it was wrong. And I remember running, crying, screaming, and I ran and I hid behind a shed. And I remember my mo mother stomping figure coming around the corner and her being like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I just burst into more more furious tears so that she wouldn't ask but I kind of knew from that moment on based on her reaction I knew that it was wrong that was when I really really understood that it was wrong because I was trying to imitate what someone had done to me just just a, you know a kiss but my mother's reaction to be like what are you doing um that was when I really really understood that it was wrong and so I, it never happened again it was just that one time I tried to kiss my sister um but from that moment on, I knew that it was something wrong and I knew that something wrong was being done to me, but I thought that it was my fault. And yeah. so I harbored this, um, basically, I had pretty bad childhood depression from there on out. Um, it manifested pretty horrifically. Um, but it was a time when there was no conversation about mental health or mental illness, especially yep. in children. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, it was, it started off the kind of centerpiece of the disarray was my bedroom. And it was kind of like this protective force field around me that if I had this disgusting putrid bedroom, then no one would enter and people would leave me alone. Mm. And then there's like um, the closest thing I've ever found to someone ex expressing this experience kind of in literature is uh, Roxane Gay's hunger, where she talked about how she ate compulsively ate uh, because she thought that no one would hurt her again if she were if her body were to change in and that was like a you know i think people have resort to different coping mechanisms in order to mitigate sexual violence and so for roxane gay that was um eating as a coping mechanism which it was for me as well binge eating but i think the first mm -hmm. thing was uh utter self-neglect in every form so not showering not brushing my teeth um not cleaning my room, binge eating junk food, obsessively biting my nails till they would bleed, mm -hmm. um, sleeping in a bed with no sheets for years, leaving moldy cups in my bedroom that, that would fester until the cup was filled with mold and then hiding them in a corner, just living, basically living in a garbage junk or a junkyard. I think sometimes people would call it that. Mm -hmm. um, basically, and it didn't matter how many times my mom tried to clean my room, I would rip it apart because it was my protective barrier. It was this external, it was, it was how I felt inside. But then mm -hmm. a lot of the times people just, because they couldn't, they couldn't conceive of a child as being depressed. Yep. They just wrote it off as you're just a strange kid. You're just the weird kid. Mm -hmm. There's just, there's just something wrong with you. And so I was acting out and I was very obviously depressed but because there wasn't language and the ability for people to recognize this as a child with who's severely depressed and is trying to cope with severe trauma uh, they actually just cemented the narrative inadvertently 
by calling me a weird kid. And then yeah. I just believe that I'm like, yes, I'm just, the, I'm just the weird kid. I'm just, there's just something wrong with me. Um, another thing that kind of cemented it was that I have had um, herpes since I was two or three years old. I probably got it from grabbing my mom's faces or something or something like that. And I had horrific outbreaks as a kid. And of course, um, having terrible hygiene made the outbreaks terrible. I would have five on my lips and I would have a fat lip and I would have to go to school and kids called me AIDS face and zit lips and pimple mouth. And so that was like this whole other, I don't know. I just, I spelled bad. I had herpes all over my face. I just, I just felt like, I just felt like a rotting carcass most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, um, I also was uh, sexually abused as a kid and I started developing depression when I was in single digits and, and people can't believe that they're just like, how could you be depressed at such a young age? And I'm like, when you experience trauma and which I didn't know how bad the trauma was. Cause I guess I like blocked it out until I did EMDR therapy because I knew something happened, but I didn't know what. And then I was like, Oh, <laughs> that's why there we go. Um, and my parents that they did like, or not my parents, my mom, when I got, uh, diagnosed with, uh, bipolar disorder, she's like, we always knew something was off with you. We just said that that's just Megan. Yeah. Because I was born in 1986. So you're talking about, mm. I'm growing up in the nineties where, like you said, nobody's talking about it. Kids, you no. didn't talk about kids having mental illnesses back then. Like no. it was not a thing. It was just like, oh, that's a weird kid. Or there's something off with that kid or something wrong with that kid. And I'm like, how, how can you see a kid knowing they knew that uh, we were sexually assaulted, my sister and I, and my parents divorced and all these things, all of these traumas happened. And you, I, I just as a parent myself, like, how, how could you just not think like my kid probably needs help? you know? Exactly, exactly. And I'm so sorry that you're a victim as well. You are not alone. I definitely understand the pain. It's and it's it's difficult, you know, I mean, my my mother pursued justice, as I said, but I think it was so she's also a victim of sexual violence. Her uncle who's who's uh, just a couple years older than her raped her when she was a child. And so I think, you know, and then my great grandmother, she spoke up about it and my great grandmother said, Oh, he was just playing doctor, you know? And so it was, it was a really big deal for her to flip the switch and to pursue justice. But I can't even, I mean, I can't imagine the scene of the courtroom. It just sounds so horrific. So I understand how, you know, and, and I, I, I empathize, you know, I empathize. She, she did try, but I think it ended up being so traumatic for her and my father. I mean, I can't imagine what it was like for my father to be accused of doing something like that. I know that for him, that was, that's like the most monstrous thing to be accused of. I mean, I understand why they wanted to, um, that they just couldn't handle it anymore. And I I mean, my, I've spoken to my dad about it and he said, you know, when I was a kid, I got beat and I was just, you had to tough it up and, move move forward you couldn't Mm -hmm. dwell on it and uh so I think that there was a little bit of that kind of um perspective involved and that's Mm -hmm. and also I mean I was very stubborn they tried to help me and I would be like no no so I think that's also like a difficult part of it it's like you know if you're a working class family and you have really tumultuous you know um 
way of life, you know, you, you don't necessarily have time to attend to those emotional needs of your children. So I have compassion for my parents. Certainly more could have been done, but I think under the circumstances, they did pretty well for the the time context, but it's, it's hard for me to fathom having my own child having a bedroom like that. Cause I just feel like I would never let that fly. Oh, my oldest daughter moved back in with, she's 19, moved back in with us for about two months. And that is literally what her bedroom was like, like in two months, she, she managed to do it in two months. Um, and she has trauma as well. And she has bipolar disorder and she knows, mm. well, when she's depressed, she knows that there is something wrong and she should get help. Cause she stopped getting treatment after she turned 18. Cause mm. then nobody could make her get treatment. Uh, um, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So like when she's depressed, she knows something's wrong when she's manic. No, she's fine. Like everything's Mm. great. She doesn't have bipolar disorder. So (laughs) that's Mm -hmm. what we're doing. And she has a lot of trauma, but, um, she doesn't process the trauma because she doesn't get the help she needs. And so, yeah, I've, I've seen it. And as a parent, I was just like horrified. Like when she moved out and she left all of like this whole room with like rotting food and it drinks like you said full of mold and she had a cat and it smelled like cat pee and there's cat poop and I'm just like <laughs> no I can I can um yeah I, yeah. I can totally imagine what your parents are dealing with <laughs> oh yeah yeah and I mean I mean if you're just you're working god in the trades which I mean I can't even imagine I mean I work from my computer from home right I, you know, the, just the level of exhaustion and you're just trying to cook a meal, you know, let alone, I I mean, I can imagine I can, I can, yeah, hold that space for them while being like simultaneously. I know that this is why I have ended up with a BPD diagnosis and a million other ones too. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Cause it just kind of like, it grinds on you. Now I am, I'm not a mental health professional. I am going to school for psychology, but social psychology, not the same, same. Um, but as with the knowledge I have, I would bet good money. My dad has bipolar disorder and my mom may have BP borderline personality disorder, which you said BPD, which some people may not know Mm. what that is. Um, I don't think she has bipolar disorder but she has major depressive disorder that's that she I'm pretty confident and I'm I think she's been diagnosed but Mm. she doesn't talk about it I I don't have a relationship with her because she um told me she wished I was never born and I ruined her life by being born so (laughs) thanks a lot mom cool so like you know (laughs) I too can have uh compassion for my parents knowing that they both we're struggling with mental illness and you mm. know that like that is probably why um they didn't have the capacity because as a parent with mental illness sometimes i don't have the capacity and i have to be like all right i can only take this much and this is how we're going to deal with it you know so i i too have compassion for my parents but it's difficult sometimes cuz you just feel like why, why didn't you do something? How did you not see that I was like struggling? Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. So how have uh, you 
have had an interesting experience as adults. You found liberation in a way that when I read your application, I'm like, that is interesting because I have never heard anybody express it that way. Do you want to share with us about that? So I recently, um, so I, I live in Berlin now, originally from British Columbia, as I said, on the West coast of Canada, um, where I am right now, actually. Um, and I came back to visit for the first time in two years. Um, I moved at the beginning of the pandemic to Europe and I came home for the first time um, in March and my mom wanted me to clear the attic of my belongings. And um, I was flipping through things from, from childhood and I found an old notebook and I was looking through it to see if I should throw it away, if it had anything interesting in it. And I came across this page from February 24th, 2004, the eve of my 13th birthday. And so I was 12 years old and it was a page titled Confessions. And I, I wrote everything, I wrote everything, I confessed to my sins, basically. Yeah. And it was the first time that I had written confirmation that I was molested by my cousins and also that I knew I was gay from such an early age. Mm -hmm. So I wrote that my cousin French kissed me, ew. And I know that I know that I just included the least egregious form of you know, the the least egregious form of the molestation. And I framed it as though it was my fault. Like, ew, I kissed my cousin. And then I said, I wrote, I get so weird near girls. I think I'm lesbo. Um, And I also went on to say that I wrote bitch on the school chalkboard, that I had had cyber sex, that I had gone skinny dipping, that I had stolen, um, amongst other things, um, you know, and I, and I looked at this and I was like, oh my God, like I was 12 years old and I, and I was writing this. Um, and it was a little bit shocking for me because I had no recollection of knowing that I was gay until I turned, until I was 18 and I was in grade 12 and I was in yearbook class and the girl's arm brushed against mine. And I had this electric shock reverberate through my mm. entire body. Some, and I, and it just it just changed the course of my life because I returned to this moment for two years being like, what was that? I've never felt anything like that before. Um, and it ultimately um, helped me to realize that I'm gay. But finding this, um, finding this entry told me that I actually knew sooner. And so um, what I know, know is the case is that basically compulsory heterosexuality which was violently enforced through sexual assault taught me that my feminine gender expression meant I was straight and that everything that I knew about sexuality and relationships with other human beings had been taught to me through sexual violence I couldn't conceive of consent or having my own desires my entire teenage years, I thought that I just existed for the appetites of men and that I would just lay there and take it. I, I had nothing, I had no conception of anything else. And so I'm confident that I buried my lesbian identity because I was also taught that, um, you know, in order to have any kind of self-worth or, or self-esteem, it was quantified by the amount of attention that boys paid to me. And when I went through puberty, there was this one summer and I was this very nerdy child. And suddenly I went through puberty and like overnight I looked in the mirror and I was like, I, I, I had 
my body had changed and I was curvaceous and and the way that I was people were responding to me was completely different even though I still had self-neglect I was pretty and I was shapely for the first time and boys were paying attention to me and so I was so desperate to be loved so desperate for validation and affection that I think that I clung to this as the only way that I could ex- ever experience love because I mm-hmm. so desperately I just wanted somebody to love me yeah so I I spent my entire teenage years desperately trying to get the win the attention of boys I was a very, very smart child. I, I was one of the, I had straight A's until I hit puberty. And then my grades went like this. They just completely, um, I went from wanting to be a, mar- a marine biologist or an astronomer to going to class and pretending I didn't know the difference between a lake and a river because I thought that being stupid would make boys like me. And my, um, and so with puberty and wanting to win the attention of boys, I, while simultaneously still trying to grapple with this trauma, I ended up experimenting with sex and drugs from age 15. Mm-hmm. Um, that was when I lost my virginity. That was when I took my first pill of ecstasy. That's when I started drinking. Um, and pretty quickly was on a, this is kind of when the self-neglect turns self self-neglect turned to substance abuse mm-hmm. um and a new a new a new layer of self-destruction was was added and uh, and there was one year when i was 15 i got alcohol poisoning and i had to go to the hospital and get my stomach pumped i had a huge house party that who knows what could have happened if the neighbor didn't call the police um and then i had my first boyfriend, which, which was a good thing in that it kept me out of trouble. And my mom allowed me to see him, but he ended up becoming my next rapist. So he was this good Christian boy who kept me out of trouble, who kept me away from drugs and and some of my friends at school, but simultaneously became my next rapist. Um, And I spent a year with him and he coerced me into sex countless times had sex with me while I was sleeping eventually the relationship ended Um, I had this experience with a girl's arm brushing against mine and then finally um, between 18 to 20 slowly slowly realized I was gay at first I identified as bisexual because I was still pursuing the appetites of men pursuing their uh, you know pursuing their validation Um, and then then 10, 10 years ago, I met my first girlfriend on Tumblr, and we ended up dating for four years. And it was through that relationship that I finally realized I was a lesbian. And um, it was the first time in my life that I was in a relationship with someone who touched me softly, gently, with care. And it was with her that that care slowly became my own, and that I started to um, push back against the legacy of self-neglect and destruction that had plagued my life since childhood in that our shared home became a place that I cared for because I cared for her that Mm -hmm. because she wanted a nice home and for it to be clean I started to learn to clean and take care of myself and take care of my home because it mattered to her and because she treated me gently and 
you know, it was the first time I had an intimate experience that, that I actually enjoyed and that my, that there was actually consent and that my own desires actually mattered. Um, and that just really um, altered the course of my life and set me toward, set me on a path towards healing. That's awesome. I, I'm so glad you shared that. Um, I can relate to the self-destructive behaviors as a teenager. I think that happens a lot with trauma survivors is you just, you can't deal with what happened. You're, you, you haven't been given the tools to process in a healthy manner. So you want to feel something you want to, I, I mean, feel something while simultaneously numbing out the pain, right? Like, so you're like, I want to feel something good, but I also don't want to feel this bad thing. And then, so you're like, like you said, you're acting out, you're trying to seek attention, like good attention. Right. But it, it yeah. And that's how we end up like attracting the bad attention. You're mm-hmm. using substances. I started drinking at, at a young age. I was very promiscuous at, at a young age. So I can totally relate to the self-destructive behaviors and mine continued for a very long time. Even after I met my spouse, who is one of the nicest human beings in the world. And when I came out as bisexual, he was just like, duh, like all the stories you've told me about your experiences with women. Like, how did you not realize (laughs) But that wasn't acceptable. Like that wasn't acceptable. No be with women. Exactly. It's it's, so I can totally relate to the self-destructive behaviors. I did it throughout my mid twenties or late twenties. Yeah, me too. Me too. Up until I, I've quit drinking December 2019 after a traumatic Christmas Eve. And uh, I woke up on Christmas Day and I was like, I if I continue down this path of self-destruction, I'm going to die either at my own hands or in a tragic accident. Um, someone else's negative impact on me shifted something. And I woke up the next day. I was like, no, I'm done. And now I'm coming up on three years without alcohol. Congratulations. And, uh, Thank you. Thank you. And I am the happiest and healthiest I've ever been, but it took until, uh, so I guess I quit drinking at age 28, but I was, uh, my, when I, a few years ago, I, uh, I, I stayed with drugs pretty well into my early twenties and I had to escape it. Um, so I moved to Toronto alone in 2015 and I kind of traded drugs for alcohol had a severe downward spiral ruined my life 20 times over um but finally was able to give up alcohol so it definitely continued until age 28 and I when I finally uh a couple months into being sober I was pretty suicidal and I went to um the mental health emergency room and then finally got a BPD diagnosis Mm-hmm. Um, I had previously gotten a, a major depressive disorder and I think that's what I was diagnosed with. <laughs> yeah. 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 And that just never really fully encapsulated the, mm-hmm. what I felt and the unique experience that I was having. And I had taken antidepressants and done everything, but it was until like, I was just, I had really, it was the first time and the only time I went to the mental health emergency room, finally at my wits end, I finally, at this point I had turned 29 finally I got a diagnosis that made sense but I'm like why did it take me until almost age 30 I was uh 33 
when I got my diagnosis. And I now know that mania started when I was probably like 14. Exactly. And, and that just like, you know, when you finally have that, something like that, it just, it gives you perspective to look back on your childhood and, and actually finally understand. Yes, no, exactly. And I mean, it sounds like you had the same experience I had where it was life changing. You're like, there's an answer. And once you have that answer, you can treat it, right? Like once you know what the problem is, you can learn how to cope with it. And that's when like my self-destructive behavior started to like wane as I got this diagnosis, I went on mood stabilizers, I started to be more stable. And then these self-destructive behaviors slowly like wane mm. away. Um, I mean, sometimes I find myself, so right now I'm in a master's program and I'm applying for PhD mm. programs and I'm so overwhelmed. Cool. I can, I can feel it, right? Like I can feel it where I want to like, you know, fall back on like, really old, like negative, unhealthy habits to cope with that stress. And I have to fight it. But like, my diagnosis was life changing. Yes, for for me as well, for me as well, to finally understand, understand, you know, because this was also part of people just writing you off as a weird kid or a strange kid was like, I had this neuroticism, I had this obsessiveness. Um, you know, and it wasn't just something like it wasn't just ADHD or whatever people boil it down to and misdiagnose you and, and, you know, put labels onto you. Um, I, I, it's because I, I think I was manic or, you know, like it, it was because I, I had illness and not just, I wasn't just biting my nails till they bled because I was a weird kid. I was doing it because, I think I was, you know, I wasn't neurotic and obsessive. Just, just, I wasn't just that way. That was an inherent innate thing. That was a response to suffering and a way of coping and a part of a mental health challenges. Yeah, exactly. I feel, so I did my capstone for my bachelor's on the relationship between bipolar disorder and childhood trauma and there is a significant relationship there. I mean, surprise, surprise. Most of us would figure that one out. Um, but to like have the research to back it up and be like, yes, like, yeah, I had a genetic component, but so does my sister and she doesn't have bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. Like there's also this trauma component and her and I, yeah. I mean, we both had the trauma with our uncle, but I had trauma from our mom because like Mm. my theory is she wasn't allowed to get an abortion and she was forced to marry our father because she was pregnant with me that that's Mm. why she blames me for everything. Mm. So I was always her target like growing up. Mm. And so I have those experiences on top of it. And so uh, it kind of like came together. So yeah, like that trauma, it manifests in the wildest ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's, difficult because when you're a little kid you just you think that's just the way that you are you 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 have an idea that something bad has happened but you don't have the full capacity to contemplate it or understand I think it's you know it's unfortunate I think that we treat children as you know when we treat children as victims that that things just happen to them and they're Mm -hmm. along for the ride but I think actually children have a tremendous ability to take their power back. And Mm -hmm. this is why I often say that self-neglect is a form of self-control because it was a way to to regain agency over my body and my Mm -hmm. life before I even knew what that was. 
And, but it took, it took until being raped as, as an adult um, when I was 20 or 21 um, for me to, that kind of ushered in, it, it, it broke the dam for me to be, it, it made all the memories spill out that I had kind of buried. And then I, finally, uh, you know, at this, I think it was 20, I think it was 20 years old, finally having been raped again at age 20, I could finally, finally look at all these memories and put them together and actually understand it for the first time and be like, this is the result of something that happened to me. It's not the result of just who I am. Mm -hmm. Simultaneously, it didn't just happen to me. It happened to me and I did have a response. I I did find a way to take back some agency. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I I mean, I was assaulted multiple times in my life. I mean, I I now know a childhood was the beginning of it, but like there were times you talked about how like you had a cousin. I had a cousin too, um, who made me feel very weird. And, and I think he did things, but we hadn't got, we haven't gotten that far in EMDR, but I'm pretty, Mm. I, you know, you have that feeling you're like something happened. Um, but mm. I think he may have also been molested by our uncle because our mm. uncle used mm. to watch him. So I'm like, he mm-hmm. was probably acting out because he had also been molested and just doing what he mm-hmm. learned from that experience. Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely. That makes like that makes total sense, and it's it's unfortunate to have these kind of realizations in adulthood because you know it's 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 unfortunate that other children were the source of trauma, but simultaneously I hold compassion for them. And, and I've tried reaching out to them. I've tried to have a conversation. They were both like, I don't know what you're talking about. As far as my extended family um, considers, I'm just a slanderer, um, you know, but uh, it happened. I have the memories. I found the piece of evidence to corroborate it. You know, sometimes that was just like, I was like, I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. It happened. Here is the evidence, the hard proof. My memories are real. And sometimes the worst part is just like, it's not even the thing itself. It's people telling you that you're crazy or it didn't happen Mm -hmm. or that you have some kind of, that you're vengeful for talking about it. When all I really wanted from these two people that did this to me, I'm not even angry at them because I know that something happened to them. I'm just like, I just want to have a conversation and I just want an apology. I, I don't, I'm not, I don't want revenge. I, I, I want peace. I want healing. I, you know, but unfortunately I don't think that will ever happen and that's okay. Um, yeah. But I mean, to, for them to acknowledge it, but also for them to get help too, because they may still be doing it. Like, you know, it, it may not have stopped at like, you know, in teen years, like it may happen again to somebody else. And for them to like, just brush it under the rug and not get the help they need, they could eventually perpetrate it again to somebody else. It's true. Yeah, that's true. And I think that that does in fact happen. You know, a lot of the time people that were abused become abusers themselves, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I am also, I'm also a survivor of intimate partner violence. And now Mm. I have come to have compassion like 12, 12 years later for him. I mean, I started having compassion for him a couple of years ago, 
and realized he was abused as a child, like, and he developed mm-hmm. substance abuse as a way, you know, substance abuse as a way to cope with that. And then to get his anger out and frustration, he took it out on somebody else. And that was me. Right. So like, Mm. and that was only when he was drinking or doing drugs, because then you have the barriers down at that point in time. And so you Mm. have less self-control than you would when you're not, you know, under the Mm -hmm. influence. And so I have so much compassion for him because I can't even imagine what it was like. I mean, I can kind of, because I was abused growing up too, but like to have all that anger inside of you and to feel that way like mm-hmm. and he's developed we now know he has multiple mental health problems and so mm-hmm. you know it's just the trauma keeps perpetrating when people can't yeah. get help exactly it just ends up becoming a vicious cycle and being further perpetuated and becomes intergenerational yep yes and so I try to nip it in the butt with my kids I'm like okay you need help my son has ADHD and when he started acting out. I was like, okay, you need to talk to somebody because I don't have the tools to help you. Um, because I, <laughs> you know, I have gone through my own stuff and I'm working on myself. And I was like, I don't have, you know, the tools to help you, but let's find somebody who did. And then he got an ADHD diagnosis. And we found out is his anger that he was having was because he couldn't process what was going through his brain. Like his, mm-hmm. his thoughts were so fast that he was getting so angry because he couldn't actually like keep up with what was going on. And once he was, you know, got treatment, he's been all, he's back to his normal like self. So yeah, it's, mm. it's really important that we pay attention. Um, Absolutely. So as we wrap up the podcast today, what would you like to leave the inspired women audience with? Um that you know it it's there's nothing you know you are not the sum of your trauma Mm. um you are not you are not alone and that's not your entire story um what I'm personally trying to do these days is I've spent a great deal of time writing talking about trauma um I plan to write a book which is I'm calling an exorcism of myself (laughs) <laughs> and once it's because I think it's an important story and, and I know that whenever I share it, um, I, I receive um, great feedback. It's something that I feel um, I must do. And once it's done, I plan on closing that chapter and, and I'm starting to identify with my joy rather than my trauma and my suffering and my sorrow. I'm identifying with my joy and, and my talent and my brilliance and I want to start writing um, and doing storytelling that centers joy and love and intimacy on my own terms in a way that befits my life. Um, I'm doing a reading in a couple of weeks where I'm going to read from the first essay that I have written on lesbian joy. Um, and I'm really excited about it. It's going to be in a Berlin magazine. It's the first time I've written about joy not ever, but in a really long time, I predominantly write about trauma and suffering and violence. And so I think what I want to say is that you are not the sum of your trauma. It's not your entire story. It's not your whole identity. You can move towards healing and you can live a life based on your 
experiences of joy and whatever you conceive as being meaningful in life, you can rewrite your story. You don't have to stay in this place of being victimized. You can recenter the narrative and take your power back in what in whatever way and uh, that that works best for you. Um, for a long time, I just really thought that I was a victim, and that's all I would ever be. But I am, yeah, moving away from that, and and not even necessarily know if I even want to identify even with the word survivor anymore. I did for a really long time, but. And it's not that I am erasing or saying it doesn't happen or inform my life, but it's not the, it's not the centerpiece anymore. The -hmm. centerpiece is my, is my, is my joy. It's not what happened before. It's what happens next. It's the future. It's the life I'm creating and, and the joy that I'm bringing into it. Hope that makes sense. It does. And I love that. I I really do. And, And, you know, I feel like I've said to people before I'm like Megan six years ago would not even see me where I am today like it it would not be a thing right so like because I was so stuck and in you know hadn't moved far enough in healing to be able to be like oh there's hope I can do more yeah exactly exactly you know there there's you have it it takes time and everybody's healing is non-linear there's where, you know, it comes back and it punches me in the face and knocks me out, but you know, I will get back up again and I will figure it out and push forward because I, I, we, we, in spite of the things that happen to us, we deserve love. We deserve joy. We deserve to be happy. And that's, I, I want everyone to know that they're not alone and, and they deserve better than the things that have happened to them. Yes. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you for being a part of the Inspired Women audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating review. And don't forget to share this out with somebody who could use some inspiration today. Tag us at Inspired Women Podcast, both on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day.